Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we are reviewing a song called Karma by the 21st century songwriter and philosopher Taylor Swift. This episode is, of course, dedicated to my brother Gregory, who has a deep and abiding love, nay, a fanatical fascination with all things Taylor Swift. Now, if my voice sounds a little bit different today, that's because although I went about five years without getting sick a single time, just about, recently I've been clubbed with illness like a baby seal, but I will survive guaranteed at least to the end of this episode to get through all of the phenomenal lyrics which we have coming up. I'll be playing a very short part of the song because if I play any more, Taylor will come and sue me. Um... That said, I do think I am protected under fair use standards because we are using it for scholarly purposes. We will be contrasting Taylor's words against those of um, Socrates, Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and more. So I hope you're, you're excited for this episode. All righty. Well, let's start with the first bit of it. I will warn listeners that there are some... Uh, there are some unchristian words in this, guys. So let's play less than 30 seconds. You hear that, Spotify? Apple Podcasts, less than 30 seconds. You're talking shit for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look down. Cause if you dare, you see the glare of everyone you burn just to get that's all you get guys all right um let's examine those first few lines you're talking well you're talking ish for the hell of it hell is the bible word so we can say it addicted to betrayal but you're relevant you're terrified to look down because if you dare you'll see the glare of everyone you burn just to get there it's coming back around here our philosopher is painting a picture of the unjust man talking ish for the hell of it note she identifies no positive reason for the evil act St. Augustine, of course, agrees as he instructs us to, quote, not look for an efficient cause of the evil act. There is none, but only a deficient cause. So, yes, the reason for the talking of the ish is simply a, a imperfection of our finite nature that is meant to be completed through union with God, the cause of all perfection. Because by ourselves, we're prone to fail and drift back towards a non-being from whence we were called. Hell is, of course the greatest distance from God. It's the name that we give that separation from our creator. And so it's actually quite accurate to identify this state of existential poverty as the reason for our sinful actions. Why do we sin? For the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. I think she also correctly identifies this sin as an addiction, right? That's something that another 21st century thinker Bishop Robert Barron has picked up on, where he says that all sin is a type of addiction. But the conjunctive, but you're relevant. Well, this echoes the words of James 4.4, where it says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So yes, there is a parallel between friendship with the world, 
i.e. relevance, and the continued addiction to sin and vice. Now here's some of the parts which wasn't able to play. You're terrified to look down, because if you dare, you'll see the glare of everyone you burn just to get there. It's coming back around. So whereas thinkers uh, like Aquinas would, would tell us that our ultimate happiness is in the exercise of our highest power, reason, um, and thereby we, use, we get the beatific vision when uh, looking up at God, uh, participating in beatitude of itself, Taylor seeks to invert that type of image in her description of the unjust man. No, this person is directing their gaze down, not up like we would uh, witnessing the beatific vision, uh, looking at God with our rational intellect that he gave us, the use of our highest power. No, no, this person in Taylor's song is looking down. And Augustine would affirm that this is in fact the posture of the wicked man. In the Confessions, he describes the the caving in on oneself. I won't try to say it in Latin because I say it wrong every time. And the Gospel of Luke supports this view, the posture of sin versus the posture of worship. Luke something and rather says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman who was crippled by a spirit for 18 years was there. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Right? There you go. She changed her posture. So, so far, Taylor seems to be right on target. Now, what about these people that were burned, quote, to get there? Well, what our extraordinarily generous reading of Taylor may be indicating is that the weight of our past sins, debts, and wrongs against others will be in view in hell, um, extracted in judgment. It's coming back around indeed, albeit at the judgment at the end of times. So just to remind you, terrified to look down, that's the posture of the sinner. We're filled with fear, we're directed down. Because if you dare, you'll see the glare of everybody you burn to get there. You actually are the sinful person who has put burdens on other people's back, who has done ill to others, and you will witness that for all eternity after the final judgment. That's the sense in which it's coming back around. Here, our, our great philosopher pivots and describes herself. But instead of the wicked man that she gives many lines to, this is actually quite short, so I think we should pay attention to this truncated description of the righteous man. And I keep my side of the street clean. You wouldn't know what I mean. Is this the only thing that's mentioned? She keeps the si her side of the street clean. Recall the story of Joseph from the Old Testament. What's his path to holiness? Now, his vision indeed reaches all the way out to his eventual elevation above his brothers, vindication in the eyes of the king, just like Christ does, this resurrection-like event which he foresees in his dream. Yeah, he sees that, but his path to that is actually keeping his side of the street clean. He doesn't see that position as something to be grasped at, and neither does Christ, right? He instead focuses on what's directly in front of him, no matter how small. He does all to the glory of God. Having been faithful in the small things, it's God who elevates him to the greater. Christ says, Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. 
his means of glorification? Quote, to do the will of the one who sent me. Oftentimes in our culture, we are told to sweep other people's sides of the streets. That guy over there is a racist. Let's go and fix him. But Jesus tells us to take the log out of our own eye before we seek to take the splinter out of our neighbors. It's pride that tells us that we should go and fix the world's problems instead of our own. It's humility that acts like Joseph and encourages us all to be diligently putting our own house in order. So I would, I would note that if good old Tay-Tay means that the whole obligation of man is simply an external compliance to the law whereby our proverbial street is made clean, is the final end of man? Ooh, I disagree. But um, I think she should probably clarify this a little bit, maybe in a further treatise in a later album. But if she means that we ought to first take the log out of our own eye before we seek to change others, we ought to address what is directly in front of us in the, uh, in the uh, very Joseph kind of style, then, hey, I think you're still on target. Because karma is my boyfriend. Okay, where did this come from? Here are a few things that uh, she might mean by this. And BT Dubs, we are still assuming an extraordinarily generous reading <laughs> of this song. Um, all right. Assuming that she means um, by karma a, uh, a uh, God's providence or final judgment in the end, whereby all things will eventually be put to right, then... Um, let, let, let's go on with what this could mean. Karma is my boyfriend. She seems to be saying that karma has an exclusive relationship to her. She also seems to be saying that karma protects her or karma provides for her. So let's look at that first claim because I don't think that fits with our generous reading of, uh, of, of her song too well. Because Romans 2, 11 through 16 reads... For God does not show favorism, favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not know the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So is karma in an exclusive relationship to, say, Taylor Swift? Well, no, but... I do think that God's judgment, the goodness of God's judgment, is in an exclusive relationship to those who obey the divine law. But as we read in Romans, that means Jew and Gentile. It means those who may not have even heard, and yet they respond to the law written on their hearts when they are either accused of doing wrong or defended and vindicated by doing right. So we're going to give this one a partial pass so far. All right, next part. Karma protects her. <coughs> I don't know if that's entirely true. Here's why. We're going to read a section from the Psalms. 
If you, O Lord, wait, this isn't the Psalms. I don't know where this is from. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. So we shouldn't think that karma is my boyfriend in that this karma, this divine judgment is always just going to have my back as if we stand in such a state of righteousness that we have nothing to fear. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, Lord, if you keep the record, if you mark sins, who can stand? That ought to be our posture. So I think her confidence in her own righteousness is clearly overwrought. The Apostle Paul says, no, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Note that Paul expects that in addition to the chastening of God, through the myriad of sufferings that he faced, he himself must discipline even his own body. Paul reminds us that he makes up uh, in his own body what's lacking in the sacrifice of Christ, which is its application in him. So instead of thinking that we're just going to be vindicated by God's judgment all the time, that we're just going to be on the right side of this, I think we should take the more humble view that the Apostle Paul says, that we're going to run the race as if to win it, that we will put our hope in God for our salvation, that we will seek not to be disqualified, that we will take blows even to our bodies and we will accept the chastening of God Because earthly protection and security are not promised, but instead, in the divine order of providence, we know that all things, even pain, work together for good, and that extends even to the purgatorial fires. All right. Maybe she means that karma provides for her, gives her things. Oh, that kind of reeks of the prosperity gospel here. I wouldn't say we should have any expectation of earthly gain, And I think the lives of the saints certainly prove this. So if karma is my boyfriend means that it'll provide for her, nah, it sounds like prosperity gospel. If it means protect her, well, not from earthly ills, but yes, from spiritual ills, that if we do right, we will protect it in that we will have eternal life, ultimately vindicated. If it means that there's an exclusivity to her, nope, I think this is extended to all those who in love obey God and are given his grace through the church. All right, which leaves us with the next line. Karma is a god. So here, continuing with our shatteringly generous reading, we're just going to say that she's making a metaphysical claim that when we talk about God's attributes like justice, which has parallels to karma, well, in the very generous way that we're reading it, um, we understand as Thomists that all of God's attributes are just what it is to be him. He is his justice. He is his mercy. He is his goodness. So if karma is a stand-in for God's justice, as we're reading her, which, true to the original? Don't know. We'll have to have Taylor on to find out. Well, then what she's saying is that, well, God is justice. And that, well, I'd say we can give that one a pass. Now, if you're a little bit worried about a modal collapse and things like that, I would suggest going to my episode on Thomism and the Divine Energies, where I place some of these properties as attached to the Divine Energies instead. And uh, I think one of my best ever episodes. Go and listen to that. I'm not sure what Taylor Swift's view in the Divine Energies are. Maybe she'll release another treatise and we can break that one down and find out. 
All right. Also, you may have been put off by the fact that Taylor says that karma is a god. However, that language is even used in the Old Testament, where angels, where demons are referred to as gods. Also, as Jesus reminds us, that those to whom the law came are called gods. So God can be more inclusive than just one god. Uh, There is one god, dear listener, but others are called gods. Sometimes, just because those who are speaking of them perceive them to be gods, and yet they are nothing like idols. Nothing but idols, as the Apostle Paul uses. Doesn't use idols. He uses that phraseology. All right, next slides. I wish I could play more for you guys. You'll have to listen to it afterwards. Or maybe you listen to it in preparation. Mm, I don't know if my listeners are that good. Oh, they probably are. Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend. Karma's a relaxing thought. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think that God's judgment ought to inspire a holy fear. I don't think it should make us feel carefree like the breeze in our hair on the weekend. And it certainly wasn't a relaxing thought for the Apostle Paul. Instead, it was a motivating thought, spurring him to holiness for himself and the church. Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Well, in regard to what we were just talking about, I I don't think so. Next lines. Sweet like honey, karma is a cat purring on my lap because it loves me. So there's a famous sociologist who had a huge review of uh, modern religious conceptions. And he concluded that the dominant religion, at least in the U.S., actually, I think all throughout the West, was what he called a moralistic therapeutic deism. So, sorry, Taylor, God is not there just to comfort you like a cat in your lap because it loves you. God is not domestic or tame or safe or comfortable. To see him in his glory would be to be torn apart in a blast of his holiness. Even Moses, the giver of the law, the friend of God, had to hide from his face. So I think that's a wrong conception. Flexing like a GD acrobat, me and karma vibe like that. Well, I'm glad she's she's vibing with karma. Uh, I think we're meant to vibe with God's justice. In fact, being made through the wisdom of God, uh, the same wisdom of God that set the laws of the universe, crafted the moral law as a reflection of God's goodness, well, I think we just ought to. We're made to find a harmony and a rhythm by assenting to the divine order. So good. Yes, you should vibe in that sense, at least to God's justice, though not to karma in the modern construal. But again, generous reading. What about this acrobat language? Well, I think that's actually a pretty apt descriptor. Often our imaginations are stunted compared to the lively movements of God's uh, God's providence. And uh, yeah, there's times we hit a wall in life and God's grace can pick us up and parkour right over the top with moves that we thought were impossible. So yes, following God uh, can be terrifying. The divine plan for our lives can leave us feeling, quote, up in the air, if you will, like an acrobat. So uh, I guess putting it as God's plan is flexing, as the kids say, uh, I think that's fair too, because he's showing off his greatness through divine providence in history. Yeah, I guess that would count as flexing. Spider boy, king of thieves, leave your weave your little webs of opacity. 
My pennies made your crown. Trick me once, trick me twice. Don't you know that cash ain't the only price? It's coming back around. All right. It appears another modern philosopher has descended into madness based on these lines. But maybe we can extract something here. There's the mention of the pennies, of the money. Maybe she's saying that since money is not the only price, we ought to pursue virtue. That tricks and webs are not ultimately successful. So let's let's go with that reading and contrast it to another, uh, to the work of another great songwriter, uh, David, in Psalm 57. He says, instead of talking about spider boys uh, weaving webs, he says, they spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. So I guess that kind of captures the meaning. Maybe she read Psalm 57 and was reflecting on this. We have the web. We have it coming back around. And then we have the chorus where we repeat some stuff. And then we get to maybe the most philosophically dense of uh, parts of the entire song. Here she says, Ask me what I learned from all those years. Ask me what I earned from all those tears. Ask me why so many fade, but I'm still here. I'm still here. So she sees herself as having benefited in three principal ways. One, by learning. That's the first line. And learning is, of course, an act of the intellect. It is ordered towards truth. Ultimately, well, the Logos, Christ himself, the maximum of truth. She also sees herself as earning. Now, earning, that would imply an act of the will, whereby it orders good things and seeks the things of highest worth. And that relates, ultimately, to the cause of all goodness, the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, she ends it with this last line, but I'm still here. And clearly, she's calling to mind the Father, as a person of the Trinity that is most properly said to preserve us in being, by being possessing in himself being per se, such that we can then have being per alute. So learning happens over time. So yeah, we, we affirm this, says, ask me what I learned from all those years. And Jesus is said in time to have increased in wisdom and knowledge. Ask me what I learned from all those tears. The earning is the result of tears. And sure enough, the willing of the highest things in the highest place, well, that's an act of sacrifice. It's painful. It's forcing our will to conform with the order of goodness that God set down. And that can be in contravention of what our own disordered desires would have. So, yes, Taylor, that could be the result of tears. Last, we have no positive action associated with her continuation in being. And how could there be? Instead, there's just an echo. I'm still, I'm still here. And that's exactly what we are. We're echoes, we're dust, we're vapor, with no ability to generate our own existence, only to passively receive it. Because karma is the thunder rattling your ground. So we have this above and below picture. I fear that our starring philosopher may be veering into the occult as she echoes this famously vapid dictum, as above, so below. 
but more positively, maybe she's referring to God under the aspect of his divine providence and final judgment, as we've been very generously saying. And here she might be referring to the omnipresence of God and that the revelation of his power can be seen through creation. Karma's on your scent like a bounty hunter. Karma's going to track you down step by step from town to town. In the tradition of, of, uh, of, uh, oh, I don't know, in the last hundred years or so, we've picked up on uh, Francis Thompson's description of God as the hound of heaven. <coughs> Ooh. Excuse me, dear listeners. Let's read an excerpt of this. This, I think, mirrors what she's saying. This, uh, the, the, the justice of God is coming to, to track you down, step by step, from town to town. This is how the uh, famous um, Hound of Heaven poem uh, describes God. I fled from him down the nights and down the days. I fled from him down the arches of the years. I fled from him down the labyrinth waves of my own mind. And in the midst of the tears, I hid from him under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated, adorn titanic glooms of chasmed fears from their strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurried chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed and majestic instancy, they beat in a voice beat. And it goes on. You can read it yourself. Additionally, Psalms 23 says, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, I'm told, and I have no idea if it's true, that to follow, that verbiage, is actually a bit weak here. Instead, it implies to chase, to chase down like a bounty hunter, if you will. Sweet like justice, karma is a queen. So we've been equating karma with justice, and here I think she's supporting this interpretation. So what to do with this queen language? Well, possibly, as we're internally made to be just, and therefore better resemble uh, God, uh, she's reflecting on that, right? So um, maybe what she's saying is that we're acknowledging in this line that Mary, in the order of grace, having received the justification of Christ, is now reflecting the divine order in a privileged way. Karma takes all my friends to the summit. All right. Aristotle, when talking about friendship, lists a few types of friendship. Those of pleasure, those of utility, and those of virtue. So I have uh, friends who I just hang out with. It's fun. Laugh with. And that's about it. I have friends of utility, like uh, my realtor, Trevor, who I've worked with for years. Um, are we friends, friends? Well, yes, but we're mostly ordered around something. So pleasure, ordered around fun. Utility, ordered around some type of end. And virtue, ordered around the good itself, right? We should seek to have friends of virtue. So if Taylor means that final vindication will be given to those who pursue virtue and are subsequently internally ordered such that their relationships of reciprocal love are made possible, well then yes. Karma is the guy on the screen coming straight home to me because karma is my boyfriend. All right. So towards the end of this song, we have this incarnational event whereby God's justice becomes a person. First distance and understood in the abstract, quote, on the screen, but then when it actually comes home to her to enter into a relationship. The Christian tradition would say that the ordering force of the universe is the Logos, Christ, and he is viewed um, by the law and the prophets, but in a flat, two-dimensional, distant way. Yet, 
In the incarnation, he comes to our mutual home, but as the bridegroom. All right. And that's the entire song. So if by karma one means an earthly justice is always done, no. Right. I don't think that we accept that. Um, but if we mean that in the end, we hope for the, uh, the judgment in the end, whereby God himself gives to each what is due, well, then we certainly affirm that. So I have a few more things to read to you that you might enjoy. One is one of the most interesting thoughts in philosophy. This is an excerpt of uh, Socrates' defense. Well, it's kind of a defense. And it's the very ending lines before he's condemned to death. And he makes a shocking claim, and I think it relates to the idea of karma. Socrates says, as recorded by Plato, Wherefore, O judges, be of good cheer about death, and know this of a truth, that no evil can happen to a good man, neither in life or after death. That's a shocking claim. He and his are not neglected by the gods, nor has my own approaching end happened by mere chance. But I see clearly that to die, to be released, was better for me. And therefore the oracle gave no sign. For which reason also I am not angry with my accusers or my condemners. They have done me no harm. Although neither of them meant to do me any good. And for this I can gently blame them. Still, I have a favor to ask them. When my sons are grown up, I would ask you, O oh my friends, to punish them. And I would have you trouble them as, you have, as I have troubled you. If they seem to care about riches or anything more than about virtue, or if they pretend to be something that they're really not, then reprove them as I have reproved you for not caring about that for which they ought to care and thinking that they are something that they're really not. And if you do this, I and my sons will receive justice at your hands. The hour of departure has arrived and we go our ways. I to die, and you to live. Which is better? Only God knows. Boom! That's what old Uncle Aristotle, or that's what old, oh wow, we don't, we have Uncle Aristotle, we have Papa Plato, I don't know what Socrates is. Um, but that's what old Socrates says right before he's condemned. I think those are extraordinarily powerful words. Pay attention to a few things. One, um, right before this, he's actually contemplating the goods of the afterlife, which are a key part to the puzzle. You know, in the Jewish conception, there were those who didn't believe in an afterlife. So they were forced to come to ideas like, well, maybe that tower that fell in Luke crushed people because they were bad, right? We know that God's just, but we know the earth is not. So how do we vindicate this, right? Well, maybe people are actually bad. But I think we also have to have an eye to the afterlife. Heck, even Socrates did, that there are ways that God can compensate us for evils that happen. And there's ways in this life that he does too. And the, even just the gift of existence itself and all the goods that we have could just be like a lump sum payment that compensates for all sorts of evils. This is not an episode on evil. We've done a few on there, so go back to that. Also, Socrates um, would believe that reason is our highest power, right? That's echoed through Plato, through Aristotle, and that true happiness is by living in accord with the natural law exercising our highest powers, which relate to uh, to our natures. 
and that can't be stopped by other people, by the haters, if you will. These people can't assault that. Your pursuit of truth, your pursuit of God can't be halted by the action of others. You can't, in that way, ever harm a good man because a good man is one who is focused on the highest goods and you cannot bring his focus away, only he can. Also note the lack of bitterness here. These people are condemning him to death and yet he's understanding humble, kind. He doesn't jump to the idea that they need to be put aright. Instead, he says, hey, I have a son and I need you to keep him in line. I need you to bring down punishment and discipline. Wow. So I think we see here a deep humility. And humility is really Socrates' secret weapon. Um, and from this springs his obedience to his spirit. It's called a daemon, right? That's where we get the word demon, but it means spirit. And I mean, given how awesome the guy was, it was probably his guardian angel. So he says he always obeys this, we'll read, guardian angel. And that made him the wisest man in the world, unperturbably happy, irrespective of circumstance. So I wanted to read that to you. It's also a few places where Jesus confronts the uh, idea of karma and not the generous way we've been reading. The idea that on earth we get justice and that if something bad happens to you, it's because you're bad. Yeah, we don't accept that. And neither did Jesus. This is coming from Luke. Now, there were though some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told them a parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for the fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years, I've been coming to look at the fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should we let it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for just one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit the next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. That's Jesus' answer to this. So you know what this parable means? And I think the fathers reflect on this. When you, when you do this, you actually dig up the roots. You descend into earth and you put manure into it. So you're getting dirty. Um, you're getting covered in disgusting animal manure. You're doing something which is deeply gross and terrible to save this tree. Well, Jesus descends down into the earth. He takes on our, our dysfunction. He lets all the grossness and evil of sin be upon him. Why? Because he's digging at the root of our dysfunction as a people, and he's fertilizing us, injecting us with life so that we can bear fruit. So, you know what Jesus is saying here? That the solution to all this is actually Christ's work in us on our behalf, so that we can bear fruit, so that we can escape destruction. So we all merit destruction, just as this tree merited being cut down. But Jesus jumps in, in humility, and in dissension into the earth, so that we won't be cut down, so that we can merit our own life, not through our own strength, but because of his sacrifice. 
Also, we had a reading recently about the man born blind. We were asked, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. He's blind so that God's glory can be revealed. We don't believe that this universe is about uh, just dispensing justice or just giving the maximum amount of good. We believe it's an artistic revelation of God who is creator. Last thoughts. St. Thomas Aquinas points out that Christ's greatest point of happiness was on the cross. Was it karma that put him there? No, quite the reverse. Um, Nobody deserved this terrible fate less than Jesus. So, was God's ultimate justice violated at the cross? Also, no, it was fulfilled. The law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth. It says karma. Getting what is coming to you. But mercy assumes the debt of another in love and thus fulfills justice. It turns the other cheek. It walks the extra mile. It gives up what is not required. It forgives the debts of others so that our own will be forgiven. Mercy would lose an extra tooth so that one's adversary doesn't have to. So, the universe was not made to generate the maximum amount of happiness, nor was it made to mete out justice, but instead to reveal God and to invite us to a free and conscious choice to love him. Not to make karma our boyfriend, but instead to make Christ our bridegroom. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. That was a fun episode. Um, Yeah. I'm not sure what's coming up next, but I hope you enjoy that too. Share this with your friends. Uh, Write a review. We have had some reviews come in and it warms my heart. My my heart, my little shriveled heart grew two whole sizes um, because of that review. So thank you to everybody who has reviewed the podcast. Stop right now. Do that. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll see you next episode.